Hey everybody, what's up? Sagi here. And before you listen to this episode, I just wanted to let you know that the Hacking UI podcast, while we still have a lot of downloads for our podcast, is a legacy podcast, meaning David and I are not recording any more sessions for the specific podcast. So what you can do right now is, first of all, listen to this episode, and second, know that you can find David on thoughtleaders.io, that's his new business, or you can check out my new podcast, which is called The Creativepreneur Show. And you can just go to creativepreneurmagazine.com or creativepreneur.show. So those are the two domains that you would be able to find my show, my new blog, my new community. And I hope uh, to see you there. Also, be sure to follow David Tintner and Sagi Schreiber on Instagram. We're both on Instagram. I'm also on YouTube. So you can check out the YouTube channel if you want to check out YouTube. Enough with my talking. Oh, my God. So anyways, I hope you guys, though, connect with me and David on the different platforms after this episode. All right. Make sure to do so because we have so much new content for you. And enjoy, guys. Enjoy this episode. Hello, hackers. Thanks a lot for joining us for another episode of the Hacking UI podcast, where we hack our way through design, development, and entrepreneurship. I'm David Zintner. And I'm Sagi Schreiber. Today, we have Kelsey Ruger on the show. Kelsey is a professor, a designer, a developer, pretty much a jack-of-all-trades, and we met and got to know Kelsey because he's also a member of the Side Project Accelerator. Kelsey loves learning and consumes a lot of books, articles, and podcasts. In this episode, he reveals a couple of incredible tips of how he reads about 50 books a year. He also produces tons of his own content. Before he joined the Side Project Accelerator, he had already published more than 100 articles, and he shared with us his method for coming up with ideas. Alright, you ready? Let's get hacking! Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Hacking UI podcast. And with us today is Kelsey Ruger. Kelsey, what's up? Hey, how's it going, guys? Hey, Kelsey. Great to have you on the show, man. So before we start everything, how about you just tell us a bit of background about yourself? Sure. So my name is Kelsey Ruger. I am a consultant in the United States here in Houston, Texas. I have a pretty, I guess, broad background. I started out as a developer when I graduated from college. Mostly because when we graduated from college, there wasn't the opportunity to do a lot of UX work, which is what I do right now. So I graduated from college and I started out as a consultant building financial software. I think I might have mentioned this to you guys before, but um, right out of college, I built financial software for a company here in Houston. At the time, it was named AIM Investments. So we were working on a project with a company named Marin Financial. And... What ended up happening is they needed a project software package. And so because we didn't have anything else, we built it using at the time, I guess it was ASP.net. Um, and that was really my first foray into doing web software. And ever since then, I've been working on web and mobile projects for Fortune 500 startups and agencies. And so I've had a lot of opportunity to do different things throughout my career. I would say that if you had to sort of label me as something, I'm a problem solver because I've had the opportunity to work in different industries as well. And you're coming at us from Houston, right? And I know uh, you're also really involved in the Houston scene now. You're involved in like Houston startup scene and everything going on there too, right? Yeah. So I guess back in, it must have been about 2003 when I had moved back from Austin. So the company I'd worked for had been acquired by Prodigy. 
um, which for some of your audience, uh, well, it, they'll remember that it's one of the old internet <laughs> dial-up companies. And so we all got moved to Austin. We did pretty well, and we were purchased by AT&T. And so after that purchase, I decided I wanted to move back to Houston, and I was working for a search marketing and web design company, and I got the opportunity to do my first bar camp. And so bar camp really was my introduction into working with the Houston community in the startup world. And what is bar camp exactly? So bar camps are unconferences. And so basically you show up at the conference, there is really no structure. Usually there's a whiteboard and people can fill in ideas about what they want to talk about. And so the participants create the conference. And so there's been regular bar camps. There's been podcast bar camps, video bar camps, bar camps that focus on specific topics. And I think what's evolved from that is really sort of things that I've seen evolve out of bar camps are co-working spaces. We've seen new startups come out of bar camps. We've seen other types of conferences because I think where the bar camp came from was one, it was a response to food camp. And I don't know if you guys know anything about food camp, but food camp was a get together that was structured much the same way, but it was by invitation only. And I think bar camp and I, you guys interviewed Matt Mullenweg not too long ago, right? Yeah, he was just on the show. So Matt was one of the first people to really get on board with the idea of bar camps because it allowed, you know, it made it democratic versus, you know, invitation only or set up by a certain group or person as a structured conference. This allowed the community to talk about what they wanted to talk about versus having that structure set for them. But how was it like, how, how did it go about? I mean, is it like a hackathon where everybody writes ideas and everybody then votes and then the ideas, like people talk about those ideas, but then they don't have a presentation prepared or anything. So how does it work? It's kind of like that. So do you, some people show up with pre prepared presentation. So one of the rules of bar camp is it's okay to get up and leave if you don't like what's being talked about. And so generally the, the structure is there's some spaces that are set up. So maybe three or four spaces and on the board, people get the opportunity to write in to usually it's 20 minutes or 30 minute slots and you go to the presentation or the session you want. And it could be anything from automation for your dog to, you know, growth hacking techniques. It just depends on what that person wants to talk about. And the way you decide is whoever shows up in that room, they don't really vote on the slots. You just get to fill it in. And if someone doesn't want to go to your session, they just don't go. Sounds like a cool concept. So you started out like bar camp scene in Houston, like you were the, one of the first that got it started. Yeah, it was me, another guy named Mark Nathan and a lady named Erica O'Grady who were primarily responsible for putting together the first bar camp here in Houston. And then we got an opportunity to interact with lots of people who were doing this around the country. So like from Indy Hall, there was the, the founder there, Alex, in Austin, a good guy. His name's Worley. I don't know if you guys have ever met Worley, but Worley's done everything. Like I, Worley's an IBM genius and he used to go all out for his bar camps. And typically they would do them sometime around South by Southwest. So They were huge. You'd get local people. You'd get people coming in from different places around the world. So those bar camps were always really fun, too. Uh, so the bar camps really gave us an opportunity not only to talk about technology and design, but you got to talk about it with people from all around the world. And that sort of led us to start another group called Refresh Houston. And so Refresh Houston was probably the first precursor to all of the meetups that happen now. So For Refresh Houston, we, it was just to everyone. If you wanted to talk about technology, design, 
marketing, everyone would get together. And I think from Refresh Houston, it sort of broke out into different meetups. So you're involved all over the place and you're doing all sorts of different groups. Can you take us through your day and what are you working on right now and what are the most important things to you right now? So right now I'm working primarily as a consultant. I'm working on a project for a oil and gas analytics company here in Houston. So that takes up a lot of time. But what the real project that I've been focusing on here recently is my personal blog and newsletter. It's KinseyCreative.com. And that is really where I have started to share a lot of the ideas that I've either cataloged over the years or lessons that I have learned. And a lot of it comes either directly from work or things that I've taught when I'm teaching user experience at the University of Houston. And that actually may have been sort of the catalyst for me um, redesigning my blog. It was originally themoleskin.com. And I figured out that wasn't really the brand that I wanted, especially since people always assumed that I was the guy who made the notebooks. So I figured it was time to change that. And so I started to really focus on sharing the ideas that I have there and it could be across a bunch of different topics because in, in my line of work, I've had the opportunity to study a lot of things. And when you study a lot of things, it gives you a lot of material for synthesis and fitting those ideas together to share different lessons. So just to put things in perspective for everyone listening now, the moleskin.com, you had something, how many articles did you have on it? Close to a hundred. So this is not like a minor site. Yeah, you had tons of content. And I remember when we started working together at the beginning of the Side Project Accelerator, you were talking about like maybe rebranding or maybe starting something new. But this is not, you were not someone who's just starting with blogging by any means. You have tons of articles, you have your speaking presentations, you have podcasts, and you decided to do this major rebranding and, and change it to KenzieCreative.com. Yep. So can you talk about that? What was What led that decision? Part of it, was sort of having evergreen project or evergreen post, right? And so I went back and I looked at them and there was posts on every topic from here's the eight reasons why you need to start a website to here's how you brand your website. So the topics were sort of all over the place because I wrote about at the time what I felt like writing about. Now it may fit in with, it may have fit in with what I was doing. So those posts about building websites and branding yourself fit with the marketing agency that I was working with at the time. But a lot of the other stuff I felt like didn't work going forward. So I was okay with cutting that. In fact, some of them, I may sort of re-swizzle them into a different topic. But for the most part, what I wanted to do was focus on the things that I was most passionate about or the things that I felt were most useful sort of long-term. So it took me a couple of days to go through and figure out which articles I wanted to move over. And that started with some of the most popular ones. So I'll tell you, for example, one of my most popular posts ever, and I want to say it got close to 150,000 page views, was about Firefox plugins. But this, this post was 10 years old, and it was completely out of date and not relevant. And so I was, I was okay losing that, even though that post had gotten so much traffic in the past. Okay, so, so you, just, you made the decision to kind of make this massive uh, rebranding of your blog and move everything over. How much work was that? For me, not a ton. Since I've been working with WordPress for so long, most of the work was on the new site and getting it ready. I will admit, I edited every single post as I moved it over because, you know, you'll read something and you wrote it a mm -hmm. couple of years ago or maybe even a couple of months ago and you look at it and you're like, what was I thinking when I wrote this? And so there was a lot of editing work, but it, that part didn't take long. I think the biggest part was getting the new site ready making sure I went to all of the places where that site was referenced. 
in making that change. So you've done this kind of rebranding and kind of to put this, to frame this a little bit, uh, you decided to do this rebranding, I guess, at the beginning of the Side Project Accelerator, right? Yep. So in addition to trying to get going with that, I was also bringing down an old site, bringing up a new one, porting over all these posts. So that first couple of weeks was a lot of work. Yeah, that's what I, exactly what I wanted to get at. In the Side Project Accelerator, every week there's a new lesson, there's something new that you have to create. So you took on, you were, no, you were one of the most active participants in the program in doing not only all the lessons and helping other people with their lessons, but also doing this major rebranding. Yep. How did you find the time to do all of this? You know, it's really interesting. I'm working on a new blog post on goal setting. And one of the things that I have gotten much better at over the years is sort of pinpointing which things to do myself, which things to ignore and which things to delegate or automate because you can't do everything. And so when I started working on the new site, one of the things I had to figure out was why am I going to design this myself? And I think this is one of the things that a lot of designers struggle with as they want to expand beyond just being designers. If you're going to I think if you're going to do a blog, one, you have to figure out what the purpose of that blog is and how much time you spend doing the work yourself versus outsourcing it or maybe purchasing it. And so for this particular blog, I found a theme that was highly customizable. And since I knew that I wanted to have sort of a minimal blog anyway, I felt okay with not doing all of the the production work myself. So it would have meant getting in the sketch designing the website and then converting it to WordPress and creating a theme for it, testing it, and then still writing blog posts. And so um, given the time period we had to uh, sort of get ready and start producing content, I felt like it was a better idea to use a theme versus doing it custom. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, it's so funny because if you've been working with entrepreneurs for a long time, or you've been working with people who our freelancers, one of the main things that a lot of people struggle with is doing the business is not the same as working in the business. So if you are starting a company and you're a designer, you have to, um, what I call, make yourself obsolete as a designer as quickly as possible, because if you don't, it's much harder to work on the business and, and do the things that it, it's required to create a successful business. Definitely. So how how exactly have you made yourself like you said, uh, obsolete as far as design, besides you took a theme that was already used, any other tips for taking yourself out of the equation and getting work done in other ways? I guess the one thing I would tell you is in my most recent startup, which was a, a mobile software company, one of the things that me and the the other co-founders decided really early on was we wanted to hire a really, really, really good team and let the team do the work. Because what you'll see a lot of times is people will start a startup. And if they came from development or they came from design, they have a pretty strong idea about how they want things to go. And they spend so much time focused on building the thing that no one is focused on building the business. In fact, I have a friend who had a pretty successful marketing company here in Houston. And one of the last times I met with him, he told me how much time he was spending as a CEO on one of the products. And I thought to myself, well, why are you spending so much time on the product when you have 30 employees who are capable? And if they're not, that means you made bad hires. And so I think one of the things you have to figure out early on, if you're a startup, figure out how do I hire the right people and then train them or mentor them so that they can succeed and help me grow the company. And if you're a freelancer, you have to sort of decide, am I building a company or am I a consultant? And it's okay if you're a consultant, 
But if you did the moment you decide to hire other people, you have to start working on removing yourself from the work equation. Otherwise, the business is constrained by you and how much you are willing to grow. That's awesome. And I want to follow up on that. But just before I do that, I want us to take a quick break and give a shout out to our sponsors for this episode. This week's episode is brought to you by Top Level Design. And I'm particularly excited about getting this sponsor on board because Top Level Design is in charge of the new .design domain names. These are springing up like crazy and they look great. You must have seen Facebook.design and Airbnb.design already. As soon as we saw that this was happening, I said to Sagi, we have to get involved in this. You can buy your own .design domain name, and because they only launched a few months ago, you can still grab a lot of great domains that aren't available as .com. If you're looking for where to park your portfolio, think about how much better it looks as your name .design, instead of some convoluted .com domain name that no one can remember. If you visit the show notes for this episode at HackingUI.com, you'll see a special link to buy any .design domain name for only $5. And stay tuned, because later in the episode, we're going to let you know about how you can get that for free. Now let's get back to the show. I think this totally applies even more so to side projects because you don't have the time that you would have in a startup where you're doing it full time or something like that. Right. This also just reminded me, we we had a lot of conversations about this, about kind of pursuing freedom and pursuing ways to find more time. I know you have a family and you, I think three kids, right? Yep. Three kids. And we were talking about how you're trying to uh, work on your side project to find more time for them. And I think what you just said about finding ways to get the work done or, or outsourcing it or teaching other people how to do it really applies to that, right? Yep. You know, I would say sort of my current mindset or philosophy on side projects is, is really by, it comes from two sources. One, the first time I read the four hour work weekend, it dawned on me, hey, the only way that startups and big companies and, you know, making a ton of money from you know, a giant product release isn't necessarily, they aren't the only ways that you can, you know, make the money you need to survive. There's lots of other ways to do that. I think then one day I was sitting here and of all the, the, the weird places to get this, it was from Chris Rock. He was doing an interview and he was talking about what it meant to be a millionaire or how rich people tend to think about money. And they don't think of it in terms of being able to buy things. They think of it as time and options. They have enough money to give them the time to do the things they want to do. And they have enough money to have options, right? So like if you want to not work for six months and you want to travel with your children or your family, you can do that because you have money coming in from other sources. And I think that to me was really the catalyst for me to do the side project accelerator, because what I realized is I'd always, you know, I've had a pretty good career and I've always had a pretty good salary. But that didn't necessarily give me freedom because I always had to go to work. I always had to be responsible for something. And so if you've always got those extra responsibilities, it doesn't really matter how much money you're making because you don't really have the freedom that you want. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I agree with you. And I think uh, Sagi and I are on, exactly on the same page. You know, we also left our jobs uh, in leadership roles at, you know, a scaling startup, making good salaries for pursuing that freedom. Yeah. Totally. And that's one of the things that kind of like uh, are leading us right now in everything that we do and everything that we also uh, have seen like preached about in Star Project Accelerator. And Kelsey, can you give us a bit of like, can you go into a little detail about why you joined the Star Project Accelerator? I mean, obviously, you are already a blogger with more than 100 articles, a community behind it. You are a teacher. You have a great career. And what made you join specifically the Star Project Accelerator? 
So I think I might have shown this to David when he was in Houston. So, you know, I wasn't starting from scratch, but what I realized, and I'm trying to remember where I first heard about this. It must have been through the newsletter, but I was sitting here one day and I said, you know what? I have a ton of ideas for products, a ton of ideas for blog posts. I need to put myself on a schedule to get some of this stuff done. And you know how that works, right? Like you say, you're going to put yourself on a schedule and you never really get the chance to focus on it. And the, the crazy thing is I write nearly every day in my journal. So I, it wasn't like I wasn't used to writing. It was taking that writing and getting it prepared to share with other people. That was the part that I wasn't doing consistently. And so what I realized was the times when I am most focused and ready to prepare content like that revolves around speaking. And so anytime I'm speaking, it could be anywhere from two to six weeks that I spend before the presentation getting ready and I always produce a ton of content around that time, but it's usually written in my journal. And so right about the time that you guys were doing that, I was sort of contemplating what do I really want to spend my time doing when I'm not working that benefits me and my family and that um, sort of advances the mission that I said I have, which is, you know, helping people use their creativity to make better things happen in the world. And that's really sort of what was the catalyst for me is I'd sort of already realized I needed to rebrand my blog. I sort of already realized that I wanted to focus my content and efforts in certain areas that I felt like would benefit people outside of just being a developer or a designer. So eventually, what did you get out of it? I mean, did you find a routine that now works for you? And did you get everything set up like you wanted to? Yeah, pretty much. I think following sort of the my philosophy on goal setting, I sort of went back and said, okay, I need small wins. And so being able to write a newsletter each week, that's a small win, right? Instead of trying to write a book or, hey, I'm going to do an ebook, it's much easier, one, to write a newsletter each week and then maybe go back and see if there's a pattern there of things that you can focus on. So that was, the for me, the biggest thing is putting myself on a schedule that I could stick to consistently. And being able to start asking people what types of content they were most interested in as well. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's most like it, it that we heard from you is that you get tons of replies from your newsletters, right? I mean, each newsletter you send, you ask questions and then you get replies back. Can you tell us a bit about that? I don't even always ask questions. It's usually something like, man, I was just thinking about this topic. Thanks for sending this or... Hey, I didn't get your newsletter yet. When are you sending it out? But it, usually each week it's yeah. something either thanks for doing this or, hey, let's get together for lunch. I wanted to discuss something with you. I think that it may actually come from the fact that I spent a lot of time mentoring people. And a lot of the things that I talk about are directly from either a mentoring session that I've had in the past or questions that people ask me a lot. And so I think that may be why it resonates with certain people when they get it. Yeah, but I mean, it's not that easy. It's like, it sounds easy when you say it, but like as, as someone that we send newsletters every week, we've done it for the past three years. And I mean, getting these kind of replies every, every newsletter is really appreciated. So, And it helps you know you're on target. Like if you didn't get them, yeah. you'd never really know. You'd have to ask people. Uh, mm -hmm. But getting the replies at least lets you know you're on the right target. And I think for me, one of the things that I decided at the start of the accelerator was to focus on, you guys know Kevin Kelly's concept of a thousand true fans. 
Mm -hmm. So I've decided, you know, some people aren't going to like your content. Some people will love it. Some people will unsubscribe from the list. Other people will stay no matter what you send them. And I had never really thought about this whole thing about a, a thousand true fans until I was listening to uh, what podcast was I listening to? I want to say it was James Altucher and he was interviewing Kevin Kelly about that. And I thought about, I was like, man, if you have a thousand true fans as any company in the world, you really only have to make, you know, about $125 per person annually on average to make that work. And so it's so funny that companies spend so much time on marketing to people who they will never win over or people who will be expensive to maintain as customers because you have to keep convincing them versus focusing on the people who want and look for your content in the first place or your product. Yeah, I mean, the concept of 1000 true fans is like we really connect to it. And that's also something that we go by. So totally. I think that if there is a tip that you can give people uh, about this is like the 1000 true fans is a is a sure a, a good tip to just go by that and And Kelsey you had a pretty interesting way of building your list. Can you talk about that how you got people on it in the first place? Sure. So I had and it's it was a longer process than the side project accelerator. I had been thinking about sending out a newsletter for a long time. And I actually asked people directly. So I started on Facebook or I started via email and I just reached out to people directly and said, I'm going to be writing a newsletter. It's going to cover design thinking, creativity, and how you can use those things in your personal and professional life. And some people said no. For the most part, I think everyone said yes. Hey, I'll try it. And even if there's a few people who said yes and they unsubscribed later, that was okay because it helped me build a pretty good list to start with. And I think it's important to start with what you know and who you know when you're building a list. And I think this goes for anything. If you're starting a company, if you are running a newsletter, it's always easier to get feedback from people you know, because they'll actually talk to you. Whereas a a person you've never talked to before who maybe stumbles across your list, they may not give you feedback, but readily give you feedback. So I was able to build a pretty good list that way. And those people refer refer to the newsletter a lot more often than I think the people who maybe have never met me before. It's really important. I mean, it, it ties back into everything you do with your mentoring people, you're helping people, you're so active in the community. And these people really turn into the subscribers on your list, the people who are reading your stuff. But I think it's something that I really, really appreciate in you is that a lot of people start doing stuff online and or start, you know, collecting emails to build their audience or their newsletter, right? And they start thinking, I need massive numbers and I need kind of these imaginative people on the internet that don't really exist. And you did it totally different way. You don't really even promote your list so heavily to people who don't know you. Like you said, it's it's really, it's like a personal list that it grew from being a personal list and it's really growing well now and people are engaging with it. And it's really that it's people that you have a real connection with and people who feel like they have a real connection with you. Right. And ultimately, I think that's the way you you build, especially if you're doing anything that's content driven. I think it's okay for it to grow fast, but I think you probably will have more success if the fast growth isn't the metric you're looking for. And it could grow fast. But I think if you focus on finding people who really like your content. And so for a long time, I thought 
man, I'm not going to market to creatives or to designers or people like that because they're not the ones who need this content. Well, that's exactly wrong because they were the ones who were responding to it. And sometimes you you may, and this I think again is a, a product lesson. You may think you have one audience and you determine or you figure out over time that that's not really your audience. And I've seen a lot of startups struggle with that where they identify a audience early on they're marketing to that audience or they're targeting that audience, but it's actually resonating with someone else and they don't pick up on it. I think it's if you are really focusing on targeting the people who really, really, really have a need for what you're doing, you're much more likely to have long-term success versus maybe the bump you can get from a growth hacking technique that doesn't resonate with people long-term. So yeah, you were just saying about what really sounded like audience-driven product development. Right. Okay, so take us through the. I think the newsletter is really special that you write because of the content that's actually inside it. You you write a very long form article each week on a different topic, and it seems like you really invest time in writing this. Yeah, and you know what's really funny is there's been a few of them I never intended them to be long, but I think when you start thinking about it and editing, they sometimes turn out to be longer than you would expect. Um, but for <laughs> me, you know, I actually keep this thing I call a thought catalog. There's guys like Robert Greene and Ryan Holiday, they call these universal books where they keep catalogs of index cards from things that they study or things that they're researching. I've, I've done that for a long time, I guess probably three years now. Um, and that started for me because I used to write all my ideas in journals. And what I found was writing them in journals made it hard for me to synthesize ideas when something popped into my head because I had no idea which journal it was in or what page it was on. And so I'd end up digging back through my journals. And then one day I realized that wasn't really the, the way that I organized things mentally. And so what I started doing was taking all of my ideas as I read books, wrote journals, worked on presentations, and I would put them in this card catalog, including I spent about 10 minutes every day just doing brainstorming or ideation and coming up with ideas putting those in. And so when it comes time for me to write an article, typically I already have, you know, 20 or 30 ideas that I could write on with some content already written because it's sort of the cumulative effect of keeping these cards. And I've had people tell me Evernote is better for that. And I'm, and I will tell them, I don't think Evernote's better. I use Evernote too, but for this type of work, I think being able to go back to the catalog and pull out a set of 20 cards and say, okay, Here's what I've thought about this over the last three years and then synthesize that into a single article versus having to go back and find all those sources. Do you know what was I thinking one night two years ago when I was having a conversation with a friend of mine about this topic? It's so easy for me to pull those out and think of a title and then start writing. And so my process is usually pull out those cards, jot down some initial notes so that I have an idea about what I'm going to write. And then just start writing in Grammarly so that I can get the article assembled. Once I get it mostly assembled, I move it over to MailChimp and finish it there. And that process could be anywhere from 45 minutes to, you know, the that goal, the goal setting one I told you that started out as an article. It's going to be a blog post now, but there's probably 25 hours that have gone into that one. But it just depends on um, the topic. I think it's so important what you said about having like a repeatable process for every step, even starting out at generating ideas. It's something I think a lot of people don't realize is that you have to, like you said, you spend 
10, 15 minutes every day brainstorming ideas. And that's actually time that you've built into your routine. Yeah. Here's what I think that the myth about coming up with ideas. And I had a, had a conversation with a friend of mine last week and she was talking about um, people thinking they're going to have this eureka moment. That is, is not real, right? There's no such thing as a eureka moment. The eureka moment is usually that point where ideas that you already had synthesize into something that's clear enough for you to move forward with. And so I think if you never spend time coming up with ideas or you never spend time looking at diverse topics, it's going to be harder to come up with ideas when you need them. And so I always tell people, you have to spend time generating ideas when you don't need them, even if they're bad ideas. Generate bad ideas. I do it all the time with blog posts. I've probably thrown away 200 blog posts or newsletter ideas because you write them down. And then when you come back to them, you're like, that doesn't make any sense or that doesn't fit this audience. But it doesn't mean you don't do them. And I think a lot of people, they want to have the home run idea when I think most home run ideas are actually the result of a, a hundred bad ideas that eventually you figure out what's the right thing to do. That's a really nice quote. Most home run ideas are the result of a hundred bad ideas. I like that. Cassie rumor. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I'm doing this 30 day writing challenge right now, every day writing a new article. And I really um, like the, the process for creating ideas and coming up with ideas really resonates with me because every day having to think of something new, it, like you said, is just not as easy as you think. There's not this eureka moment at all. And you, I really have to uh, be prepared with an idea that can turn into a full article and everything that you said matches the audience, fits, you know, I have examples to back it up and there's something, there's some meat to this. Yeah. And the other thing that you're doing that I think a lot of people romanticize is if you are a great writer or you are a great artist or you are a great guitar player, people think that people are just born with those skills. And I always tell people when they like a lot of people look at my handwriting or they'll look at my sketches and they'll say, man, you're so talented. I wish I was creative like that. And I will always tell them those things have nothing to do with creativity. It's the output that's creative. And so if you're writing every day and it may not sound glamorous like, oh, David's writing every day, but that act is actually making you a better writer. And that's how people become great writers is they write. And that's how people become great artists is they they draw. And I think I spend a lot of time with different types of people and I always tell people practice is what makes you great. It's not, you know, being born with this great talent that no one else has. It's not having an aptitude, although some people do have an aptitude. But I think what you end up finding is the people who have the aptitude just develop a passion faster because there's something that they're doing on a regular basis to help them get to that point. Perfect. And I'd like to follow up on that in one second. But just before we do, I want to take a quick break to tell you about our sponsors. So as I said before, this week's episode is brought to you by Top Level Design, who are offering the new .design domain names. If you go to the show notes for this episode at hackingui.com, you'll see a link to purchase any .design domain name for only $5 for the first year. But this week only, they've agreed to hook it up for Hacking UI listeners. On Thursday, that's October 27th, we're going to send out our weekly newsletter, and in each email, there will be a personalized link that lets you get that domain for free for the first year. No credit card required and absolutely no risk to you. It literally doesn't get any better than that. If you're not already a newsletter subscriber, you can sign up on hackingui.com slash sign up and look out for the offer in our next newsletter. And again, if you miss this week's deal, you can still visit the show notes of this episode on hackingui.com to get the domain for $5. <laughs> 
another sort of like process that I know we've heard about from you in the side project accelerator that I want you to dive into is the way you consume content. You're a avid reader to say the least. That's like the understatement of the century, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I probably really should write a blog post on this because I have several different methods of consuming content. The first thing that I'm okay, first of all, I buy a lot of books and I think, man, I should, I should probably get an affiliate link for this, but um, there's a company named thriftbooks.com that I buy a lot of books from now. Basically the books are used and a lot of them come from libraries or people that take really good care of their books, because I think it's much easier to consume content written than it is on screen. In fact, I, it's not just me. I think there's even been research that shows comprehension and reading ability is much higher when you're looking at it on paper versus screen. Now, I'll use screen too, but if it's new information, I will get the book. And so typically when I get a book, I read both jackets, I read the table of contents and I scan the entire book first before I go back and read it. Mm-hmm. And I'm doing that so that I can sort of get a structure around what the book is going to be about. And I actually tell people this, especially with nonfiction books, don't treat nonfiction books like a movie. Like it doesn't have to be a surprise what's in the book. What you should do is sort of create a framework around what you're about to read so that it's easier for you to absorb that stuff. The other thing that I do as I'm going through a book, um, well, first of all, I've taken plenty of speed reading classes. So I think if you can, you know, find your, the, the information you need on, on reading faster, like not sub vocalizing and using your finger as a pointer, don't read in bed, like tips like that. Um, will help you read faster. And so as I'm going through, I have a system. I will underline key concepts. If there's a a big paragraph that I think I need to come back to, I'll draw a line next to that or put a star. And when you're reading faster, you learn how to skip parts that don't contain valuable information. So getting good at figuring out, do I need to read this next paragraph after you've read the first line is a a key part of that. And so once I've gone through a book, then I'll go back, take my index cards and write down all of the ideas, quotes, references. And if I'm so if I'm working on a presentation that usually results in more information that I have to go look up. The second thing that I do, especially with web content, if you're a Mac user and you know, if you haven't started using this, you're missing out is I use the speech or the text to speech function on the computer all the time. So instead of if I'm at work and I'm working on something and an article pops in, I can listen to that article while I am working. But, you know, you select the text and you just let it um, read it to you. And so a lot of times for me, it's figuring out one, where am I right now? And can I read this whole thing? Two, is this the best format to read it in? Uh, so those are the top two things that I do. Um, I also supplement reading with executive book summaries and a lot of times audio. So if I'm in the car, I'll listen to audio. So it may not be reading the number of books that I read or that I I consume in a year, but I will find different ways to get that information, especially to fill time, because there's always time to fill when you're traveling or on the go. And a lot of times I'll end up with the book, the audio book and the executive book summary. If it's a topic that I want to make sure that I am well-versed on. How many books do you read in a month or a year? In a month? Probably on average three to five, but it could be as high as 10 in some months, depending on what I'm um, getting prepared for. 
So we're looking at you're you're like probably on average about a book a week, and not only are you reading a book a week, you have a very advanced, very in-depth strategy for how to absorb as much as you possibly can from the book. I think it's incredible. You know, one of my friends and I were talking yesterday about. I said I was going to write a blog post about how people learn versus how we've been taught to learn, and a lot of things that you learn in school aren't necessarily the best ways to learn. Like there's been a lot of recent research that shows a lot of things you learn in school just wrong for comprehending lots of information. And we've been taught to absorb lots of information we actually don't need. And so a lot of times I think kids would be better off in school if we taught them how to learn before we start teaching them. I mean, I know for me, it wasn't really until maybe my sophomore or junior year in college that I actually figured out how to take good notes. And so I used to have these super verbose notes and you know, I'd go to class and in one class, I'd take five pages of notes. Well, that's not actually useful if you don't know what to note. And so I think things like math and science and understanding that um, they're abstract or, and, you know, they're abstract concepts. And so if you can build a metaphor or analogy around math, it makes it so much easier to understand these new mathematical concepts or engineering concepts. And I know there's guys like Elon Musk who talk about this all the time. Like if you can build a mental model around the topic that you are trying to learn, it makes it much easier not only to learn that topic, but to use it going forward. And there's people, Elon Musk, Bill Gates, these guys talk about it all the time that you have to learn how to learn before you can really make the most use of what you're absorbing on a daily basis. And what do you get out of consuming so much content? Why is it so important for you to consume so much content like this? There is a great book by this guy named Franz Johansson, and he, it's called The Medici Effect. And basically, he talks about um, you know the periods in time where diverse culture and diverse people and knowledge intersect in a small place or a, you know a city. And for me, I think. Covering a variety of topics, one, it it just makes you a more diverse person, but I think it also helps you make connections better. So if you have been a developer and a designer and you've really studied it, you understand that on the at the foundation, those two things aren't really all that different. It's just different types of problem solving. And so I think that that actually has been one of the reasons why I'm able to communicate with both designers and developers is because I understand the topics well enough to take something from one area and explain it to the other group. But I think for most people, what they'll find is if you study psychology and for example, you are a UX designer, it's going to make you much, much better at designing products for people because you understand things like how people build habits, or you understand things like how people make decisions or why people react to products in a certain way when they have a certain emotion. And so understanding those things will help make you better at pretty much anything. So another topic I want to ask you about, I know you do a lot of, is public speaking. Can you talk about where you're speaking today and what kind of speaking events you're doing? So in, let me think through whatever. Okay. So in November, I am speaking at a conference here in Houston called Inside Jobs. And it's basically a conference that the AIGA group here in Houston puts on for designers who work at what we call in-house. So they're not an agency designer. They are um, maybe at a big company. 
And so at that one, I'm going to be talking about what's called Rebirth of Slick Part 2. And it's based on a presentation that I did like five years ago on how companies can build products that people love. And so this one is primarily focused on going a step beyond that. So it's not just the company, but what is it that designers need to know in order to be a part of a good product team? Like what types of skills should they have? And so that presentation, I think it's the second week I have to look on my calendar. I'm also doing a presentation for the um, UXPA group here in Houston on creative leadership. And so a lot of times okay. people will ask me, how do you lead creatives? And I, and I tell them, I think you lead creatives the exact same way you lead other people. But I do think there are a set of skills that you need to develop as a leader and as a company that makes that process easier. So those are the, the main two. And then I'm doing some workshops here in Houston and I think a couple of other places in the United States on becoming a learning company and how you can use learning to multiply the output you have as a company. So how do you get all these speaking invitations? Um, what's really interesting is these came up just because people know me and they've seen me present before. Usually it, does my speaking engagements come by request. But if you are interested in speaking and you're maybe a new blogger or you are interested in speaking, the first thing I would tell you is it's the same as any other thing that you want to sell to someone is think of the audience and think about what content they need. I think a lot of times what ends up happening when people have bad presentations is they tried to come up with something that was important to them first, and then they try to find an audience for it. And a lot of times that misses the mark. So if you know you want to talk to designers or you want to talk to developers, it's much easier to develop that content if you go out and look for what they're interested in and then figure out how you can share what you know about that. It's, it's less time consuming. And usually it's easier for you to get accepted onto conferences and conferences as a new speaker if your your content is in alignment with what they want to do. That makes a lot of sense, definitely. Can you also give some tips for preparing presentations and the speaking itself for someone who's just starting out? My process is pretty in-depth. Here's what I was saying. Start with your summary. Like get a title, start with your summary, um, because that should be the foundation of what you're going to do. Then you come up with your takeaways. And usually I say have three to five takeaways and then build your research on the topic Around that. And you'll notice I'll say research because I think even if you know a topic really well, if you're going to speak on it, you need to research it and make sure you've sort of covered all the bases with sharing that information with the audience. I always structure my presentations in story format. So there's a beginning, a middle and an end. So there's the introduction of some character or person as the hero of the story. And usually it's the audience and you are casting the audience in a scenario where they can be a part of the presentation too. And so a lot of times it's as simple as saying, giving a summary of the world that they live in and the things that they might be struggling with. And here's how this world changes if you do this thing. And that's sort of the middle and it's the meat of the presentation. And then the end is sort of the, the climax and them realizing, okay, this is easier to do than I thought it would be. And then the, the hard part is just filling in the examples. And so you fill in with anecdotes, data, and I always tell people, if you're, if you're doing a, a classically structured argument, you need not just the pathos, but you need all of the parts of, you know, logos, pathos to convince them about um, the argument you're making. So not being, not using Greek terms, you'd need an emotional appeal. 
you need a logical appeal and then you need to make it visual or you need to make it something that they can relate to and, and visualize. So a lot for me, a lot of work, I would say most presentations for me could easily be a hundred hours of work. And it's not just, you know, I don't usually put the slides together until the, a couple of weeks before the presentation, but it could be, you know, three months of work to get the information together. Wow. So it's not something that happens overnight, huh? Not <laughs three> months of work is a serious job. investment. If you, and I'm, I'm a big stickler for, and I think maybe what people know me for most is the visual nature of my presentations. And so I'm a big, I'm a big fan of make them highly visual, make them nice looking, but it's like anything else. You can't build a great website if you don't have great content. And so I think I would tell people, don't worry about slides until you know the content is structured well, because that's actually what's going to drive audience engagement with your presentation. Okay. Since speaking of audience engagement, so you go through all this work, you build an awesome presentation, you've invested like three months of time, but at the end of the day, you want to keep this audience engaged even after the presentation. And I remember you give me some interesting ideas for how to go about doing that, how to kind of take the audience with you to your next stuff, whether it's your newsletter or your blog. So how, how do you do that? You know what, what's, and this kind of dates back to a debate I had with one of the partners or CEO in a company is I was going to give a presentation and he insisted that I put the company logo on every slide. And I kept arguing that isn't going to make people want to come and talk to us. It's the content. And so I, it really kind of dates back to that. Of I had to prove to him that the way you get people engaged with the company is not by slapping your logo on everything or putting it on every slide. Every company does this. I think the way you do this is if it is not a sales presentation, if you're at a conference and it's supposed to be a thought leadership thing, you need to put some thought into what your thought leadership actually is. And so if you are doing a presentation on storytelling, maybe you should have a a guide that they can download or something that you can hand out that's useful for them if you really want to engage with them because they're not going to contact you just because your logo was there. And they may not contact you even if they liked the presentation, but if you give them some sort of, I, and I know we call them content upgrades, but some sort of content upgrade for your presentation, it makes it a lot easier to engage with people long-term. So for me, it may be as simple as a checklist. It may be, you know, an infographic. It could be, a lot of times it's just, here's all the resources I use for this presentation. If you want to go read these books or articles, here's how you can find them. Okay. So we're nearing the end here. It's already been about an hour. The last thing I wanted to kind of ask you about was how much time you you spend on helping others. And you, you mentioned how you mentor before and how you teach. And we noticed this a lot in the Side Project Accelerator that every time someone had a problem, there was a 99% chance that you, know, you were in the Slack group helping them back and giving. And it's right. something that we also preach a lot is you know being a giver and not a taker. And I just want to ask you about that. I remember there was there was a quote that you told me before about the legacy that you want to leave. I don't remember the exact wording. I don't want to screw it up. So what was that about the legacy that you want to leave? So for me, it's, and this is something that was sort of ingrained in me as a child is if you really want to make the most impact, it's more important to give back than to receive stuff. And what you find by putting that into practice is you almost always get back what you gave anyway. And I think a lot of people go into situations thinking about how can I make money? What can I get out of this? For me, 
I always felt like my legacy would be better if I could point to magnifying other people, because if you magnify other people and you teach them how to do the other thing, it has a multiplying effect versus, you know, I wrote a song or I built this website. But if I can teach 10 other people how to do what I do, it kind of goes back to that make yourself obsolete thing. I think if you figure out a way to make yourself obsolete by magnifying the community, it always has a much more impactful effect. And this is always controversial when I say this, but if you look at Bill Gates and Steve Jobs, Bill Gates is doing a much better job of making a difference in the world because it goes beyond the technology. Like he and his wife are contributing to things that go so far beyond Microsoft that it's hard to even quantify that. And I think a lot of people will say, well, Steve Jobs died, so he hasn't had the chance, but it was always a pattern with Bill Gates. And so I Mm -hmm. think if you look at where people can make the longest lasting legacy, it's by giving back to other people and helping grow the community around them because that actually has a lasting impact. And we really see that that's something that you believe in, you know, and you're doing in your work, in your life. And I think uh, not only has a lasting impact, I think it also comes back to helping you in, in business and whether it's growing your audience, but it, it ends up helping you. But I think it's really hard for people to believe so strongly in it and find the time for it like you do. Yeah. I, I think if you don't really believe it, it, it's much harder. But I can tell you, for me anyway, it's rewarding and it's it's been rewarding just beyond what I wanted to to do with it. I mean, people typically will receive, if I ever need something, I'm, I'm okay with going to certain people and asking because I feel like I've already contributed in certain cases. So I don't even really have to ask a lot of times because if I need something and I say, hey, I need help with this, I usually get people that volunteer. Uh, and I can tell you pretty much dating back to my first management job, I still have people that will call me and ask, ask for advice or just call and say hello, because I think once people realize that um, you genuinely want them to succeed and you're not just, they're not just a cog in your own success, it actually motivates them to work, not just for Mm. themselves, but for whatever effort that you are working on at that time. It's a nice mantra. With that said, Kelsey, it's been, we've already stolen about an hour and 10 minutes of your time. So I think we're going to wrap up here. Thank you very much. Yeah. And can you let everyone know where they can find you on the internet? You mentioned Kenzie creative and .com and how else they can reach out to you. So Kenzie creative.com on Twitter. It's Kenzie creative. If they want to follow me on Instagram, it's actually Kelsey Ruger. Those are the three places where you typically are going to get the most from me. I mean, some people may find me on Facebook. I usually have a lot to say on Facebook too. And I highly recommend signing up for his newsletter. Kelsey, I'm I'm looking yeah. forward to your newsletter in my inbox every week. Always something really interesting, really well thought out, and just really appreciate that email. So I highly recommend that to everyone listening now. Thank you. So thanks a lot right. for your time, Kelsey. Thanks no a problem. lot, Kelsey. So that's a wrap. Thank you, hackers, for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed the show. You can find all the links and resources from this conversation on hackingui.com slash podcast. And just before we go, we want to share with you something that you might find useful. 
As you know, we are voracious readers and consume a ton of articles, books, podcasts, and videos about design, development, and side projects. We curate the hell out of everything, and each week we send a short roundup email of our favorites. If that sounds like an email you'd enjoy getting, then we'd love to have you join our awesome community, which already has more than 20,000 happy members from all over the world. You can sign up on HackingUI.com. By the way, on HackingUI.com, you'll also find some other cool stuff like the Sci Project Accelerator, our eight-week online program in which we teach everything that we learned in the three years working and scaling Hacking UI as a Sci Project before we quit our day jobs. And you'll also find our resources page, which reached the top of the week on Product Hunt Tech, and our events section, which is filled with conferences and meetups for designers and developers. Hey, D, don't forget the tees, man. We also got some cool t-shirts for designers. Sagi, so, again with the t-shirts? Hey, I designed those, but, but really, last thing, if you enjoyed this, we would really love to hear from you, either by tweeting at us at Hacking UI or by reviewing the podcast on iTunes. Those reviews really go a long way and help us and even make our day. All right, so we'll see you next week, hackers, and remember to keep hacking. Hey, everybody, what's up? So if you enjoyed this episode, I'm very happy, and you're welcome to listen to the rest of the episodes of the Hacking UI podcast. I just want to let you know that this is a legacy podcast, meaning... David and I are no longer creating new episodes for this specific podcast. David and I are working on different businesses now. So just wanted to let you know that, first of all, if you want to catch David, you can check out Thought Leaders. And that's what he's working on, thoughtleaders.io. And if you want to check out what I'm working on, I have a new podcast. It's called Creativepreneur, the Creativepreneur Show with Sagi Schreiber. And you would be able to find that on iTunes and any podcast app and I would invite you to come and listen and that's where I interview people that have built a lifestyle business out of their skills and passions it's amazing I interview so many different people that have amazing stories and will help you with your business will help you with your skills taking your skills to the next level and achieving higher goals so if you're interested in that I'm there the creativepreneur show and you can check it out also on YouTube and you can also just go to creativepreneurmagazine.com or or creativepreneur.show. I hope to see you around.